Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. So we're we're back in school. This is sort of the big thing going on yeah. with us, and it's philosophy central, right? All philosophy all the time. You get in the summer, um, lots of philosophical things happen, a moment here, a moment there. Then school hits, and I feel like I'm just fully immersed, mm-hmm. you know, and, and different topics with all the different classes, but it just seems like it's philosophy around the, the clock. This morning mm-hmm. I got up and thought, well, I better read The Stranger again, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a good chunk of the day gone. Um, but I should say, not wasted. Always a pleasure. Yeah. So. Yeah, I get a healthy dose of it, too. I, I have, in addition to teaching my classes, I have my commute, which I try to use as an opportunity to uh, get some reading done or listen to a useful podcast for work. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um history philosophy without any gaps or something like that yeah I've, I've been doing something similar my commute's not as long as yours but it's about 30 minutes and so i've been popping on great courses and yeah things like that you can um, get a little work in i needed to take a break from i've been listening to rousseau's the social contract but mm-hmm. i've also been waking up extremely early and driving to work and sometimes that starts to lull me <laughs> into i'm like oh i gotta wake up so then i'll put on something else also, it seems like there's something wrong about listening to Rousseau on the way to school, right? With his <laughs> don't educate children, every child left behind policies. It's just kind of rude to the kids you're going to teach. You get there, I was like, I was just talking about Rousseau, right? So going to a place where they're maybe having famine conditions and saying, boy, I ate a lot of roast beef yesterday. <laughs> yeah, well, this, this semester I'm teaching metaphysics of death and environmental ethics and social ethics and but environment or um excuse me metaphysics of death is my new prep mm-hmm. and so uh it's one of my favorite classes to yeah, teach yeah you, you offer a great version of that class so i in in our class I, this sort of got me thinking about what to talk about this week and we've had a lot of uh podcasts where we've addressed the issue of identity mm-hmm. so this will be another one i guess but I, you know, it's got me thinking about a lot of uh, a lot of issues related to the intersection of personal identity and determination of death. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about in that class how to define death. Yeah, I'm I'm older than some of our listeners, but I'm still there with the putrefaction standard from the <laughs> Middle Ages, right? It's it's dead if it's rotting and you can smell it. That's, that's not what scientists use nowadays. That's a standard that, um, like, some think, well, that's the only guaranteed way to know for certain. So obviously the metaphysical and the epistemological components come, a, come apart, that yeah. death happens at some point, and what mm-hmm. point, at which point that is is a metaphysical question. 
But then there's this epistemic question of how can we know that that event has occurred? Mm -hmm. Well, the only way you can really know for certain is putrefaction. Yeah, yeah. So we've been talking, yeah, we've been having fun addressing the issue through, you know, we've been talking about Edgar Allan Poe and we read the premature burial and, and thought about how the, the shortcomings of earlier ways of determining death that might lead you instead to embrace a putrefaction standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know. Yeah, that's a fun be- addition to your course that I'm going to appropriate okay, yeah. next time I do it. Just before you go on, I, w- I was thinking about this. So when, when my metaphysics of death class is over, I always feel a little sad. Like, you know, that oh, that was good. I'm going to miss that. But I don't feel badly about the The time time before before. the class begins. (laughs) And yet, metaphysically, they're on par. So Richard's making a joke about what's called the asymmetry problem in conversations about death. Oh, that is similar. Okay, anyway. (laughs) Where then? So here's the problem, just so the, the listeners are not in the dark, that we view the time after we die as being bad for us. We view our own death as bad for us, but we don't view the time before we were born as bad for us. And so... There's a, it seems like since if, if just stipulating that both are periods of non-existence, it mm-hmm. seems like they should be equally bad. Yeah. And, and if the or time equally neutral or good or whatever. Yeah. They stand up all together. And if the mm-hmm. time after you exist, um, isn't identical to the time before, um, you know, then in some sense you must still exist. There's an afterlife mm-hmm. and that's a thing to be celebrated provided mm-hmm. you've lived a certain kind of life and, mm-hmm. and certain stories are true. I mean, so, you know, it, it, it's even weirder to think, well, yeah, I don't mind this time when I didn't exist, but now I'm really worried about this time where I may be in heaven, you know, um, eating pizza and drinking root beer floats all day, every day, you know, what, or whatever mm-hmm. heaven mm-hmm. is. The, the Backstreet Boys mm-hmm. are there, according to one philosophical account, you know, whatever it is for you. So we're having these metaphysical discussions about what constitutes death. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about how um, in the 1980s, there was this presidential commission that got together to make a recommendation mm-hmm. as far as legislation and stuff goes uh, about what death should consist in. And so they come up with this disjunctive account where a disjunctive is, account is one where if one of the, it's, it's a series of options um, connected by an or statement. And if one of them is satisfied, you're, mm-hmm. you're golden, right? So, or yeah. not so golden in this case, you're dead. Um, so the presidential commission says, here's how we're going to define death. I, it's a person has died either when they have um, ceased irreversibly, uh, irretrievably, irreversibly, all um, respiratory and uh, circulatory function, mm-hmm. or they have um, irretrievably lost all functioning of the entire brain, mm-hmm. including the brain stem. Yeah. And so that one, so in, in arriving at that conclusion, there are three views, two to take seriously, that they had to rule out. So one's the putrefaction standard. Mm-hmm. That we'd have to wait till people decompose. Right. Um, but... I think you never go wrong if you... <laughs> the other is the higher brain standard, which I, I want to talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. And then the other is a view according to which 
something else determines whether someone has died, like their soul leaves their body. And obviously we have no medically, if, if there is indeed such a thing as a soul, we have no medically verifiable way of ascertaining whether it's left the body or not. So you mm-hmm. can't go with that standard. And obviously there are important reasons for coming to some consensus on when someone has died. Right. One standard that the commission considered but then rejected is the higher brain standard. Instead, they opted to go with this entire brain Mm-hmm. standard and here's the reason for that which has really gotten me thinking about the, the things i thought we could talk about today is um the higher brain standard relies on a metaphysical idea about personal identity mm-hmm. that the reason why you might think that a person is dead when they've when their higher brain and only their higher brain has irretrievably ceased to function is because it's the higher brain that, that is responsible for what we might typically take to be associated with personhood. Mm-hmm. So psychological traits, you know, um, the, the kinds of things that would give us psychological continuity through time aren't, are now gone. And now you've yeah, just yeah. got, um, you know, you've got the kind of autonomic functioning that is that the lower brain is responsible for. Mm-hmm. But that's not, the you know, whether you're, whether you're, um, body is going to retain other types of functions, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's going to continue to um, digest and produce waste and things like that. Yeah, those are not, but we're assuming in this circumstance that the person's on a ventilator or on a life support system that's helping their blood to pump or something like that. Um, but But the other basic functionings of the body are not the kinds of things that we typically take to be associated with psychological continuity, um, mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, one of the papers that we're, th- we're thinking about in the class says, look, um, if your head were chopped off, if you were decapitated, your brain would bear the same relation to your body that it does when you're in a, uh, when you're permanently brain dead, mm-hmm. you know, so hi- higher order brain functioning is lost. Right, right. Um, and so if people don't think, if people think that a person is dead when they're decapitated, which should just be like a reductio, like, of course they're dead, but you know, mm-hmm. um, then uh, we should also take them to be um, dead when they've lost higher order brain function. Right. But, I mean, there's there's some politics and stuff behind this, right? Yeah. So, you know, if if there's still chemical activity in the brain, there's a sense in which no matter how you want to call things, they're not actually fully, completely dead, right? There's There's something... Yeah. Like animation going on. But that stuff, as I understand it, um, you know, can go on for 10 or 12 days after the heart stopped beating, after the higher functions are and, gone. And if you're hooked up to a life support system for, for, indefinitely. It, it could keep going. Right. right. Um, such that somebody's in an accident, they're, for all intents and purposes, dead. Um, but you can't harvest their organs if you're committed to this right. kind of no activity whatsoever. Yeah, so the Presidential Commission rejects the higher order brain definition of death in favor of the entire brain standard just because they say um, that the higher brain standard relies on too much metaphysics. Um, Mm. So here, they want to try to try to arrive at a definition that is strictly biological. Mm -hmm. And they think the higher order brain function builds in all this philosophical baggage about what personhood is. Yeah. And they want to, res- which is interesting because this is, 
one of the maybe central questions of this whole debate is, is there such a thing as a totally biological definition of when a person has died? Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if part of the motivation for that is not wanting to rub the people who think that um, personal identity is tied to something like a soul the wrong way. Uh -huh. um, there's, we're not going to wade into those waters. Or... Well, I don't think so because they, they, they explicitly say we can't do a soul-based definition. We, mm -hmm. There has to be one uniform medical standard. Um, and, and some people think that, that a person shouldn't be removed from life support even when they've lost functioning of the entire brain. So it's not like they want to allow room for any religious tradition to be able to make a claim to a person still being mm -hmm. alive even when they're brain dead. But I'm thinking one could be agnostic about whether or not there are souls um, and still say, well, we're not going to do the higher um, function criteria because mm -hmm. that'll commit us to a thing of personal identity. And then similarly say... I can be agnostic about that, but we're not going to base it on souls because um, we don't want to be committed to that, right? So you just say, fine, the whole brain's gone. That gets you presumably more than, you know, um, just the higher function account of personal identity, the psychological account. Mm -hmm. Also gets you the soul-based account. Presumably everybody's happy. Only if you're thinking that the soul is connected to the brain in some way? I, I'm guessing, yeah. I'm guessing that the, the people are thinking something like, okay, well, if there's a soul and the whole brain's dead, that's when the soul's left. Well, I don't know. There are some cases that, like, so for example, I going back all the way to an ethics bull case from like 2005, um, there was a, if, I don't know if you will probably recall this I'm case. I'm just going to say right now, your memory is so much better <laughs> than mine. I can't go back to ethics bowl cases from 2020. Uh. <laughs> with some things, with other things, your memory is much better than mine. But I, I, I remember this because I actually debated this case. Mm -hmm. um, that So here, here were the details. And then I had my students talk about it yesterday, yeah, um, on Wednesday or Friday, I guess. Um, there's a, a Muslim... Um, man who goes to the hospital. He's, he's been seriously injured in a car accident. Um, he's brain dead. Mm -hmm. uh, the entire brain ha has uh, ceased functioning. But because he's hooked up to a ventilator, there's still respiration and circulation occurring. Mm -hmm. um, so the family doesn't want him taken off life support. Wow, yeah. And so there's something a little crazy about that, right? If you say, well, you know, he's not dead. He's still waving his hand. And then you look down and they got some machine lifting his arm up, going right. to the left, going to the right. Um, yeah, right. Not, not that people's religious views, you know, don't mean to yeah. be critical of that. But just at some level, you know, it's respiratory function that the machine's doing the work. Yeah. So, yeah. Um. Right, and and one of the things that the presidential commission says in its report is um, that the that respiration and circulation aren't life itself; they're signs, and they're signs that something that the brain, which is at the apex, is functioning to produce those mm -hmm. things. And and when the heartbeat and the respiration are no longer reliable signs. Mm -hmm. that the apex is still functioning, then they cease to be valuable at all. Yeah. Right? They're, they're, they, they don't signify anything. 
Uh, and so, so, so they, they end up um, adopting this integrated system. The reason, the justification that they offer for uh, moving to a whole brain standard is that a whole brain functioning is required for the body to function as an integrated system. But one objection that gets raised to this is the body, even after the brain stopped, like, what do you mean by integrated system? Like the, what, once the, the, the brain is stopped and the body's being kept alive on a ventilator or, or whatever on life, life support, um, the body can still do things like process waste and uh, take in nutrients. A, a person can gestate a fetus mm-hmm. uh, in that state. A person can go through puberty in that state. So it seems like the system is still pretty darn integrated, even without the apex, right? The, the brain yeah, that's yeah. supposed to. So, uh, so, so it seems like there's something missing about, or misguided, I guess, about the integrated system approach to understanding when, when death has occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it seems like an arbitrary place to point to, to say, now that we don't have a brain, we don't have an integrated system anymore. I mean, there are all sorts of integrated systems out there without brains. Here I am like motioning toward the bike path and the little nature um, preserve we have out there. But I'm just I, thinking about all I was wondering what you were con- pointing at. I thought maybe you were like <laughs> pointing at our, our neighbors across the way. <laughs> no, no, no. Just kind of no, aimed I'm out not, the window. I'm just thinking about all of the the non-sentient life. You know, right, right. Uh, you know the, all, that non-sentient life is functioning as um, each and collectively, but each individually functioning as an integrated system and undergoing photosynthesis and things like that mm-hmm. uh, without some brain apex that's making it all happen. So That's what you think. <laughs> so uh, We'll do an episode on conspiracy theories later and I'll bring this back up. And then there's just yet more, another consideration to take into account that I, th- I think is really interesting, which is that uh, everybody's engaging in a little hand-waving uh, that death only really occurs when um, entropy overwhelms homeostasis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've the author we consider here, and maybe we can put all the papers in the show notes so I'm not put in a position where I have to remember everybody's names, <laughs> but but we, I can point, we can point you in the direction of the papers. Yeah, um, the the um, this author makes a point that like think about a cup of coffee in one cup and maybe some cold water in a thermos. They're both going to try to arrive at room temperature, Mm -hmm. right? That's, they're going to move in that direction. And provided that evil thermos doesn't stop them. Yeah. Right. So maybe it's not in a thermos. Maybe it's in a glass. Anyway. Over time, right? Yeah. By tomorrow, the coffee's going to be room temperature. The water's going to be room temperature. Mm -hmm. But our bodies are processing energy and and so forth. uh, Um, and they're not, uh, we're not, if we started trying to achieve room temperature, we'd be dead, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's, it's when entropy overwhelms homeostasis that we die. And that that's the same for all living creatures. Um, and so that anybody who tries to define life in terms of brain death is just like not speaking scientifically accurately. So this author makes the case that given that this has always been, we have reason to be really dubious of scientific definitions of death anyway, we should actually implement a much more permissive standard 
for people to make individual choices about when they think their loved ones are dead based on, you know, does they, that we shouldn't have this one uniform standard. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Although I'm guessing you want medical facilities um, when they have to make a call operating according to uniform standards, at least in the event that there's not a family there saying, no, our beliefs are X. Right. Yeah. I think it's when, it's when people have real interest in the matter. Right, you know, right. The, the, but people always do. And then, then there's the concern about like contributing to a couple of things, like contributing to people's wishful thinking that their loved one will come, you know, return in the form that they knew them, you know. So mm-hmm. w- once they're, once they're brain dead, they're never going to have the kinds of interactions, at least in this realm, uh, right, right. With, with their loved ones that they did before. And that's just something people have to come to terms with. Um, but also there are financial issues, right? So people maybe want to keep their loved one on a ventilator in the hope that they'll regain consciousness, having false beliefs about mm-hmm. whether they can and then get, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt or more. More millions. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could rack up a hundred thousand in a month, mm-hmm. you know, or less. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, you know, every now and then somebody comes out of a coma after X number of years, decades and. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that gives all kinds of people ridiculous false hope, mm-hmm. right? Um, every now and then somebody goes to Las Vegas and says, I'm going to put $100 <clears throat> on the roulette wheel on bread and I'm going to let it ride 27 times in a row and I'm going to be a millionaire, right? And the, a couple of times in history, something like that has happened, have made a lot of people think that could happen to me Throw too. Throw away tons of money, yeah. Yeah, there's that great John Belushi skit on the original... Um, season or maybe the second season of Saturday Night Live where he's um, in a coma and the, the doctors are telling his parents um, um, Jane Curtin and maybe Chevy Chase um, you know he, he's not going to survive it's time to pull the plug and it's a tough decision and everybody's crying and then they say yeah it's for the best and the doctor goes to pull the plug and then Blue sits up and goes mom dad you guys were going to kill me, you know, and, and people watch it and, and, you know, um, I mean, you shouldn't form any of your philosophies from Saturday Night Live, but I think people do internalize that kind of Yeah, thing, that there's a hope and you don't, false I mean, hope. there is no hope bigger than wanting your loved ones not to die, right? That's, that's kind of as, as, as hopeful as one gets. Yeah, for, for me, it's winning the lottery, but that's, that's a close <laughs> second or fourth or... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's in my top 10, for sure. Um, I, would, I would like to own a, a check more ukulele someday. And, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm mostly in agreement with you. Um, so did you get all this stuff from that Lethal Weapon movie? Was it the one where they're like, I'm going to deliver a whole lot of entropy to their homeostasis? I don't even know what that joke refers to. It's, it's just thinking that death is entropy, acting... Subverting homeostasis and then imagining in like one of those lethal weapon movies, some badass guy's like, time to bring some entropy to their homeostasis. Oh, it, meaning he's going to try to kill him? Yeah. Oh. It's, it's the yeah, way, that's where I got it. It's the way the cool kids say. <laughs> that's, that's where it came from. I think it was in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm, all this is interesting on its own, but then we, we've had some conversations in class that got me thinking about like oddly about how all this discussion of death and personal identity might apply to our current predicament when it comes to people 
being willing to accept evidence that disconfirms things they were already inclined to think. So here's what I'm thinking. Um, it's come up a couple times in class that your death is the end of your psychological continuity, right? Yeah, that's, that's because it's that, that's the, that's, you know, if what personal identity is a psycho psychological continuity, then when you don't have that anymore, um, you cease to exist now. It's, yeah. And even, and even if it's not that right, your psychological continuity is going to go by the wayside when you die, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it's not the defining characteristic, so. Yeah, I mean, there are other reasons for thinking that like, oh, um, something, that that's not sufficient for death, but it might at least be necessary. Yeah. Um, but then you might think that your psychological continuity gets disturbed all the time within life. Mm -hmm. and, and then I was thinking, you know, people don't want to say then that you're dead every time your cycle, you, you change sufficiently psychologically mm -hmm. rather just that, but you, that might raise questions for your personal identity, like whether you're the same person anymore. Um, but the end of personhood need not be death. It might be something else. Right, right. But I'm thinking about people who refuse to entertain new information, new evidence, evidence that might tend to disconfirm the things that they were inclined to believe before. Um, and people who want to ban books or refuse to read certain kinds of books because they're afraid of what they might mm -hmm. experience, afraid of what they might contain, afraid of what they might learn. When students disagree with me in class, I always Google what they say to see if what I said was right. And I always do it with a bit of um, trepidation. It's this, ooh. I might find out. Oh, if was... they disagree with you about some fact and you're. Yeah. Yeah. You're... So, so there was an example in class the other day where I, I used a, a word from a Simpsons episode and um, <laughs> said, yeah. And if you don't know what that means, it's not really a word. And then someone said, oh, no, here's what it means. And, and mm -hmm. gave me the, the um, usage of it. And, then, and so I looked it up and I was like, there it is. But then we then we looked it up further and said. This is from the Simpsons episode, and it's yeah, viewers, something that's just managed to become a word over 20 years. Yeah, so. listeners will know this. This is, yeah. a, or some of them are like, promulent. promulent. Yeah. <laughs> the, the littlest one in Biggins Us All. Yeah, yeah. Says, Jebediah Springfield said that. <laughs> um, yeah, and in Biggins? In Biggins? It's a perfectly cromulent word. It's a word. perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> well, now it's a real word, right? It's, uh, it's um, moved from a Simpsons joke to a real word. Yeah, but just just to your point, I mean, um, I, I'm not one of the, I don't think I'm in the category of people you're describing, but I'll admit to just the slightest bit of, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes searching for facts is like, oh, I hope I'm not wrong. Yeah. Right, but there's bad cases of it, right? It's um, Well, and I'm thinking if, I'm wondering if that case, I, I think that is revealing, but I don't think that... Um, that it's it, that part is that that example is crucially tied to your identity. Right. right. Maybe no, if it was something not. that you cared about more. Well, like I said, I, I just I, I get the motivation, but I don't have the, the sort of psychosis that is maybe involved in the, the kinds of cases I think you're concerned yeah. about. Although I don't know. I, I don't think it's always psychosis. I think it's just fear. So there's this one famous paper on death called the Mercropolis case reflections on the tedium of immortality. Yeah. By, by Bernard Williams. Bernard Williams. And 
in that he's talking of he he provides this example from this opera where there are lots of other details of the opera that this like most important detail almost seems incidental but the idea is that the main character can um take this potion to extend her own life indefinitely mm-hmm. and so as a result become functionally immortal and then the question of the paper is whether immortality would be desirable at some point she stops taking the potion and yeah. so kind of the question is well would people inevitably want to take the potion um and and williams argues that if we were immortal one of two things would happen it would make this would make immortality indesirable undesirable one we would get bored mm-hmm. or two if there's sort of just this infinite number of things to do we would change so much that we wouldn't recognize ourselves at some point in the future and then not only would so we all uh it may be the case that your um personal identity changing so much is undesirable on its own but then there's also these metaphysical questions of whether it's uh whether it makes sense or whether it's rational to anticipate the experiences of someone so dis uh, so unlike you that that they they it might not be appropriate to call them you at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, you wind yourself in the, or you find yourself in the unusual circumstance um, of desiring somebody else's future. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, but, but not in the sense that, oh boy, it would be great if I were, you know, famous pop star X or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but rather just, oh, here's what I hope happens to me. And then I give you a list of things that my buddy Norman mm-hmm. wants to happen, most or none of which I presently desire, right? Because mm-hmm. you'd need that radical shift yeah. to, to stave off the boredom. Right. Um, but, you know, th- uh, that's always a possibility within life. And that's sort of the, the point that I want to make about exposing yourself to new information and new ideas and so forth, that... There's so much opportunity to do what we ordinarily would call changing and growing mm-hmm. that it might change us entirely. I mean, I'm a very different person from the person I was when I was a, a teenager because I've, I've read a lot of books and met a lot of different kinds of people with different kinds of experiences and changed my perspective dramatically. Uh, but yeah. I think that people fear shifts in personal identity in the same way that they fear shifts the shift that's caused by death in that death is sort of the end of yourself as you identify. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Um, I wonder if there are people who don't, but only because they're sort of sufficiently circumspect about it. Oh, um, sure. Of course. Of course. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody feels this way. What I'm trying to, to, to capture is uh, it's kind of sort of a social analysis of what's going on right now. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so, so let me just not mince words about what I'm thinking about. There are a bunch of people out there that are anti-vaxxers and there are a bunch of people out there who believe the big lie and, and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorists and, and believing those things is part of their identity. And so they're not that interested in evidence to the contrary. In fact, uh, in some of those cases, they may be concerned that evidence to the contrary will change their identity. Mm-hmm. Right? They might dem- they might identify as Trump supporters first and foremost, or a, a different one that's you know. Well, before we go to the yeah. next one, I, just my thoughts about this though is, um, you wonder why 
people would feel that way about those things, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. we, we know some people like this that are, um, you know, their whole identity is wrapped up into accepting certain conspiracy theories or being anti-vaxxers or accepting the big lie, which is a conspiracy theory. Um, but these are, these are recent developments and their, mm-hmm. their identities are, are connected to them such that, um, you know, a few years before... Um, now, just you know, go back, um, you know, two administrations ago or one administration ago. Um, if you said there's going to be an assault on democracy in the form of a big lie, mm-hmm. these people were like, I would fight to the death to stop that from happening. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, none of these people are people that, that would have balked at a, a vaccine mandate or very mm-hmm. few of them. Right. Mm-hmm. There, there's the people in militias that live in Idaho and mm-hmm. you know they, they hate everything the government does no matter what but just mainstream people that are that are um, anti-vax or um, vaccine hesitant are people that wouldn't have been not very long ago so it, it's a strange phenomenon to me and I agree with you that, that this occurs that there are people that don't want to get more information because there are things that are you know um, being MAGA people or whatever are such a big part of their identity Mm-hmm. But it's not like it's been their identity the whole time. Well, it's been, a, it's been, a, yeah. I, I think there's going to be a lot to be written about the psychologies of people who seem to be MAGA come what may, mm-hmm. you know, um, about people who were, I mean, we, uh, it's recently been reported to me that um, here in Utah, that when, so, so if you, if you don't live in Utah, you might not know that Utah is a dominantly LDS state, mm-hmm. Mormon state, and the Mormon church has a prophet. And the prophet has recently um, come out and and suggested to everyone or recommended to everyone that they get vaccinated, and he himself has been vaccinated. And in response to this, many Mormons were calling the Mormon prophet a false prophet. So this is a this is this is a group of people who would have thought, who, who previously would have thought that their faith in the um, existence of a living prophet, you know, their, their Mormon faith that committed them to the existence of a living prophet was possibly the most fundamental component of their identity. And then this idea that's been perpetuated in certain, you know, in the, in the MAGA crowd that there is a, uh, that, the, that the vaccine is, a hoax or like it's it's a a power tool or something uh or a tool to oppress people so mm-hmm. that other people it's a power grab i guess i meant to say yeah, or they're, worse the bill gates things that they're tracking yeah. i mean still a lot of people believe that for, for so for at least many here not, probably not anywhere close to to most but for many here uh their belief in that their 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 desire not to push back against that for fear of losing their identity mm-hmm. is more extreme than their desire not to. Yeah, I mean, if it, you know, it's a, a movable object and an irresistible force, you would think. Um, and shockingly, they went with, um, you know, the vaccine denialism. Yeah, 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 it's pretty astonishing. Which, in the analogy, is the the irresistible force, um, but only by stipulation. <laughs> yeah, I I tried something like LDS in college, and I thought some pretty weird things at the time too. But but it wasn't exactly that. 
No, it's, and it's not, we're not saying anything bad about the LDS population, just some subset. It's interesting to see some subset of the LDS population trusting more in Trump than in the prophet. Yeah, yeah, um, right. And, and I interrupted you to just talk about that a little further, but you had a second example. Okay, yeah. My, my second example just has to do with um, this practice of censorship. Uh, so now I'm not talking about people deciding not to pursue certain information for fear of losing recently adopted identities like Trump support or something like that. Um, vaccine denialism, but instead like, um, whole movements to do things like ban the Harry Potter books mm-hmm. or, um, one that there are a lot of them that are popular in the media today. So, uh, there are, I've, I've seen a lot of stuff lately. So a lot of libraries are trying to diversify their offerings for children, knowing full well that there are children that have backgrounds that are not traditional backgrounds, but another nevertheless are wonderful back backgrounds worth celebrating. Some children um, are immigrants. Some children have same-sex parents and these types of things. And so um, li- children's libraries are starting to o- order books that have those, those sorts of characters. And uh, people are just losing their minds that their children might be exposed to books with this kind of content, right? They're children's books. I mean, you know, often in these cases, it's like um, the, 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 the parents, the same-sex couple take their kid to the park and they meet a magical dog named Snowflake. I mean, you know, yeah, it's just not yeah. even, it's just a part of the story. Right, right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a gateway drug to critical race theory. Well, that's the other, I mean, that was the one I was going to mention, right? Yeah. I mean, so um, the, the debate around critical race theory has a saying, well, not us, has, has, Persons who are expressing disagreement of, or not disagreement, exactly, because you have to know what something is to disagree with it, but expressing hostility toward critical race theory, they're saying nobody should ever study this. Summarily rejecting it, regardless of whether they know the content or not. And here's here's the idea, I think, and I think this is the perfect example of what I'm talking about, is someone says, I ought not to expose myself to critical race theory or I may not be patriotic anymore. I ought not to expose myself to critical race theory, or I may not feel that our country has always been just, or that our systems are fair, or things like that. And and who would I be if I'm not a patriot, mm-hmm. right? That these kinds of death of identity transition. So if we were fully to expose ourselves to new ideas and new arguments, and then what we risk is a sort of death of personal identity. Right. And, and, and people are afraid of that. Yeah. What if you were to say, well, this isn't the greatest country in the history of the world, but it's really, 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 really amazing. Mm-hmm. For some people I know, mm-hmm. that would be too much. Tre- that, treasonous almost from their vantage yeah, point. Yeah. That they, they couldn't be the kind of person. They would cease to value the things that they value most dearly if they even acknowledge something like that. Because I would submit that, you know... We're a really undereducated country when it comes to knowledge about um, like comparative politics and international affairs. I've, I've had the opportunity to work with students in other countries and just interact with people in other countries. And so, for example, I, I, I did this training for high school students a couple of months ago. 
And during part of the training, I was in California. And during part of the training, I was in Utah. And the students, when, when that was explained to them, like, oh, she's here from, you know, whatever state right now, Utah now or California now, the students knew where the different states were. And they made comments that suggested that they knew the difference between the weather in those different states. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, so... The, that, one, the one little munchkin that said, ah, California, LSD, ah, Utah, LDS. <laughs> But, you know, so they may, uh, you might think, well, the world revolves around the United States. That might be something that a patriot would be inclined to say. And so Mm -hmm. no wonder, but it doesn't. And Mm -hmm. these people just know geography better than... Right. And it certainly doesn't revolve around Utah. Sure, sure, sure. So that's just nuts. But but anyway, um, we don't know. The average person in the United States does not know about the healthcare system of other countries. They don't. They don't know what the basic constitutions of other countries say. So people will often say, you know, at, at the Fourth of July, it's common for people to be like, "I'm thankful for my freedom. God bless America, the only country where we can ha- we have our freedoms," which is just nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, there are lots of free countries in the world, um, and yet. That's not welcome information. Right, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, because it doesn't jibe with the jingoistic um, narrative. And I so. really think it's not just a matter of not wanting to be wrong. It's a matter of not wanting to lose this critical component of one's identity without which a person wouldn't know who they were. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. What are we liking this week? Well, we're, we're not liking as much as we usually do um, on account of the fact that I turned 60 since the last episode came out. And so we snuck away and went to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Five-day vacation in the middle of the start of the semester and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, but there's a, a, a few things on the list. Also, we've some of the stuff we're, we're watching we've already talked about. Um, maybe the big thing is... Um, the new season of American Horror Story is back on, right? So it's double feature, and so we're they're airing the, the first half of it. So instead of a regular 13-episode season, there'll be two six- or seven-episode um, shorter stories, right? So a double feature. And I got to say, um, the, the one that we're... The, the first one of the two is the best American Horror Story since maybe Roanoke. Yeah, quite some time. Yeah. I mean, so it's a fantastic cast. Um, Almost everyone who was ever in American Horror Story that was really great um, has been in it with either a large or a small part. Except for Jessica Lange. Jessica Lange. Don't get your hopes up. (laughs) Yeah, and Dylan McDermott's not. But, um, you know, um, Evan Peters and Sarah Paulson and, and, you know, all of them. So it's good. it's less campy than it's been in the last few season. um, seasons. Nothing wrong with campy, but I, I think, um, yeah, 1984 and... Um, Apocalypse. Apocalypse. And even Colt, to a certain extent, just was over the top with the silliness. Where what I you know, initially attracted me to American Horror Story was a really clever playing with you know, traditional tropes you know, asylum, right? There's mm-hmm. nothing silly going on there. Even the stuff that may seem silly is, um, you know, artistic. You know, like uh, in Asylum where Jessica Lang, oh, it's not, 
Is that the one where she does Life on Mars, or is that in... That was in Freak Show, but she also did the name game. The name the game Asylum. was it's in the Sign big Asylum. dance yeah. number. And, the, and like you would think that would be very campy, but it's actually just kind of stylized and cool. Yeah, it was stylized and cool, and the, the way it played out is the whole thing was happening in her head. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, which is a, a trope in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, I don't want to spoil it or say too much about it, other than um, American Horror Story is back. And it's it's really good. The the main conceit um, is extremely clever, and, mm-hmm. and you know it's creepy and fun and, and everything you could want. Um, so another thing we started watching, um, I'm going to put it on the what we're liking list, um, is the Steve Martin Martin short um, thing on on Hulu, um, Only Murders in the House, in the I, building, yeah, or in the building, yeah. Um, I, we were talking about Murder House a moment ago, and yeah. that, that got in my head. So, yeah, let me tell you several things, I think. First of all, um, when I was in my um, late teens, Steve Martin was like a god. I, I went and saw him doing his act up at Lake Tahoe at Harris, and we um, tipped the maitre d', I think, $15, which would have been an insulting tip to a maitre d', but he probably thought it was cute that kids were doing this. Mm-hmm. And he put us in the table, you know, right up against the stage down in the front um, and got incorporated into his, into oh, his show fun. and everything. And, and I think you told me that. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. It was just anybody have questions and then I asked some question and then he answered with something that wasn't an answer to the question and that was the bit. And mm-hmm. But it's like, oh my God. And then we got his autograph afterwards. Um, and it, yeah, and then the early movies, The Jerk was great, and Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid, and um, The Man with Two Brains. I mean, you know, he was in this kind of can-do-no-wrong category. Um, and then, for me, um, did a bunch of things that were just kind of boring, right? Cheaper by the dozen, and, um, you know, Bowfinger, and, and those sorts of things. Um, and then it seemed to kind of mostly disappear, Except for um, things that, that he had written that were supposed to be by a writer. Um, so, you know, um, Shop Girl or something, you know, and it, and it just got writer's voice. Then he started working with um, Martin Short, and they write things together. And the stuff they do just has this listen to how pithy we sound kind of dialogue. And I've really found it off-putting. Um, that said, um, Only Murders in the Building, even though it has that quality, um, manages to be pretty fun. It's, it's, um, it's charming and it's interesting. Um, you know, all the characters have backstories that I like and so forth. So despite it sounding like a recent Steve Martin thing a lot, it's one of the rare ones that, that I managed to enjoy. And by the way, almost all the same stuff applies to Woody Allen, right? I, I can't stand Woody Allen movies anymore, and I used to love them more than anything. But at some point, they just got this irritating, listen to me, I know how to write because I'm an intellectual tone and blah. Um, okay, on a maybe more sophisticated note, or maybe less, judge for yourself, I loved Cocaine Cowboys. Uh, it, was, it was fun. <laughs> we binge watched it. 
Um, true crimes. It was, it was fun. True crimes is always great. Yeah, it, it was only fun. I mean, it wasn't very good. <laughs> That's it. I, and I, I wish those guys had stayed out of jail for 10 more years. And um, <laughs> and I could have watched more and more and more of it. Um, so, you know, take this recommendation with the largest grain of salt possible. Um, but, but I thought it was a hoot. Yeah. Well, that's a wrap. Episode 58 is in the can. We'd like to thank you for listening in. If you're interested in supporting I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, ithinkthereforeifan.com, click on the link that says donate, and follow the instructions. See you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>